on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. All of us, in one way or another, have absorbed that certain positions and certain public issues are simply what it means to be Christian. But we need, I think, to be able to debate and talk about it and not scream at each other and respect each other. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project Podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. If you have questions about evangelicals, there's no one better to ask than Mark Knoll. Mark Knoll is a world-renowned scholar specializing in the history of Christianity in the United States and one of the foremost experts on the evangelical movement in America. Mark's most recent book, entitled Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be, was co-written with leading historians David Bebbington and George Marsden. Together, they explore the past, present, and future of a movement in crisis. In order to gain perspective on our current moment in time, I recently spoke with Mark about the history of evangelical movements, critical inflection points such as the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early 1900s, and the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, which was spearheaded by leading figures such as Billy Graham and John Stott. I wanted to understand how we ended up where we are today and what we can learn from parallel situations in the past. Here's the conversation. People are confused and our hope is that this podcast might provide a little clarity on the right. cultural issues we face. So if you had to pick three, four, or five of the most pressing issues facing the church today, what immediately comes to mind for you? Well, both as a historian and someone trying to keep up with what's happening around the world, I'd, I'd say there's just actually at the foundation, one simple answer to, to every effort to try to describe major uh, goals or major problems, major issues facing Christian churches. And that, that's to, to keep the Christian message itself central. And obviously different churches and different Christian movements uh, spin, the, the, interpret the message differently, but certainly the understanding that uh, people are themselves uh, sinners and therefore themselves the major problem of the world around them. And then that in God's grace through Christ, we have a reconciliation with him and the possibility of living uh, fruitful lives with other people. Now, but obviously that central matter gets played out differently. So if you're in China, you, you have a different set of issues than if you're in uh, Nigeria. If you're in um, urban U.S., you have a different set of issues than uh, uh, rural or, or suburban U.S. I think for, for, for the United States, uh, at least to me, it's clear that uh, the tendency to politicize the implications of the Christian gospel is, is a major problem. This is not to say that uh, there aren't implications from the Christian faith that have political implications, because there are. There are many. But when, um, as many sociologists have now pointed out, when your, your affective allegiance is stronger to people who share your politics, 
than with those who share the Christian faith. And that's, that's a, a, a real issue. Clearly, the emphasis in the last uh, maybe five years, but then even maybe more 20, 25 years, even back to the 1950s, on the, the racial history of the United States, especially the black-white issues, is a major matter, um, which will be differing in intensity depending upon where you live and what, what your uh, network is. My own sense also is that um, the integrity of the Christian faith is compromised when extreme voices on the uh, internet with social media have the major source of public attention. My own sense is that that we have in the United States and in the broader Christian world many, many responsible Christian voices of different political persuasions, of of different social outlooks, of different attitudes toward the problems we face. But these responsible voices in an internet age marked by intense social media involvement tend not to be listened to as much as the extreme voices that often trade in untruths or semi-truths or half-truths. And th- this is a, a, a modern problem, not because communications has been ideal in the past, but because the communication system we have today allows uh, extreme uh, democratic access. Very good for some matters, not so good for uh, a re- reasonable, reasoned, careful, and I would add, solidly theologically based discussion of current issues. So those would be at least some of the things that strike me as as most important matters in our day. Together with George Marsden and David Bebbington, you edited a recent work entitled Evangelicals, Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be. And in the introduction to that book, Mark, you stated that the word evangelical is in trouble. And that's uh, for a variety of different and competing reasons, which is what I'd like to explore with you in part. But let's start out by simply getting our bearings. Sure. Uh, many people are uh, confused by the very term evangelical. So how, how might we have defined the term evangelical, at least historically? Right. It is a, a difficult matter because historically that the term was used for all Protestants, and then in the 19th century, it was used for almost all Protestants. There was even into the 20th century, some Unitarians who wanted to call themselves evangelicals, and and after World War II, the National Association of Evangelicals did give a different slant on the history, because now there was an organization that had as its prime goal the identification of people who would call themselves evangelical. Historically, it was much more common to say, well, this Presbyterian has strong evangelical emphasis. This Methodist is, of course, in the evangelical uh, movements. This uh, Mennonite or Christian Reformed person is coming closer to uh, American evangelical patterns. But after uh, the, the Second World War, w- with uh, the National Association of Evangelicals, with fig- figures like John uh, Ockengay, eventually Billy Graham as a, as a key uh, public figure, there seemed to be a coalescence. And there, there was a coalescence, strong regional centers, um, uh, individuals uh, like Graham and the organizations like Christianity Today magazines did, did uh, give a kind of coherence to a gospel message that stressed what had been characteristic of evangelical movements since the 18th century. So the authority of the Bible is certainly stressed the need for a personal living relationship with Christ was stressed, often in terms of conversion. Uh, 
the, the uh, theological emphasis was usually on the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the, the work of the Holy Spirit coming uh, to bring Christ alive. And the, these things were, were, were fairly well defined uh, theologically with the uh, passage of people like Billy Graham, with the uh, coming to the fore of divisive cultural and political issues, uh, fragmentation certainly is, is what we see today, maybe not as dramatically different as once was thought because there was a lot of diversity in the early uh, post-war era with evangelicals as well, but certainly fragmentation today around some traditional theological, biblical issues, but more around contemporary cultural and political matters certainly characterizes what I always want to call as evangelical movements rather than an evangelical movement. I recall John Stott once talking about uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy as the great betrayal and the great reversal. The, the church historically has had a great legacy of tying together the importance of evangelism and social action. Right. But with the emergence of the social gospel at the beginning of the 1900s, uh, championed by Walter Rauschenbusch, there was sort of social action without the gospel, and this became known as the social gospel. Stock called that the great betrayal of the gospel. Mm. But then uh, those in the fundamentalist camp uh, were guilty of the great reversal. So they reversed on the great legacy. Right. Uh, they, they moved in opposite reaction of the social gospel and doubled down on evangelism alone. Uh, and uh, dropped the the aspect of social action that had been uh, always important to the life of a of a Christian and of the broader church. So so how did that controversy, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, uh, help contribute to the emergence of the evangelical movement in the 20th century? And what are troubling aspects of that uh, divide that uh, continue to lurk in the shadows of the evangelical movement today? Well, certainly there's a, a direct connection between the uh, fundamentalist movements of the early 20th century and the emergence of what came to be known as neo-evangelicalism or the, the National Association of Evangelicals, Carl F.H. Henry, eventually uh, Billy Graham, quite a few, a few other uh, notable individuals. Positively, I think you'd have to say that uh, toward the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, with some uh, developments in universities and public life, Fundamentalists were characterized by those Christian Protestants who thought it was essential to maintain the supernatural character of Christian faith, essential to maintain the authority of the Bible. And these, these were, in my view, uh, positive uh, contributions. Uh, and it's, it's also the case, uh, as a, a few historians have noted, that outside of the public eye, beyond fundamentalist leaders who were known as fighting fundamentalists, there just were an awful lot of men and women who would have considered themselves very traditional in, in, in support of revival and, and, and belief in the Bible, who, who uh, went out of their way to be kind to the people in their parish and their congregations, to do the right thing in, in the community, and without publicity could be known as what? Kind fundamentalists, gentle fundamentalists. These people get very little press because uh, they're not nearly as, as exciting as somebody standing up and burning the, the uh, Revised Standard Version, for example, or, or, or uh, uh, 
making outrageous comments about, about their, their opponents. Negatively, I think uh, what you put your finger on was, was a real problem. Uh, historically, evangelical people have taken social positions really very, very widely across the spectrum. There's, there's a wide diversity. But uh, the idea that you would be removed from interest in society was, was just almost unknown. And the situation you described uh, was a problem. Uh, once a few of those who call themselves interested in the social gospel seemed to, or really did, de-emphasize the need for personal redemption, de-emphasize traditional authority of the Bible, then some of their opponents linked together a concern for social betterment and theological modernism. It didn't have to happen that way, but, but it did. And the legacy is that some in the fundamentalist movement simply thought that any kind of effort to bring justice in society was a waste of time and a, a sure indication that those who wanted to do that were theological uh, modernists. Fundamentalists, in, in their proper desire to have uh, dedicated personal Christian lives, sometimes moved from uh, biblical ethics to American legalism. So they weren't, weren't going to smoke cigarettes, so weren't going to drink liquor, weren't going to go to movies. And if you did, did those things, then, then you were a real, real ethical Christian. Well, these are not completely unimportant matters, but they're certainly not the weightier matters of the law that the New Testament is, is filled with. And then I do think there was also a, a, a retreat in matters having to do with biblical interpretation. Because of attacks on the authority of the Bible, fundamentalists were known, which was, which was good, for defending the scripture, but very often the defense of the scripture led to a kind of wooden literalism, uh, proof texting, a refusal to look at the context of biblical uh, types of literature, biblical genres, and that, that was a, a negative uh, consequence. So in, in some ways, uh, I think all Protestants at least, in some ways all Christians today who value the scriptures, believe that the faith is a supernatural religion, owe a debt to the fundamentalists, but there was a legacy, there was a cost to those positive matters, and, and some of those, some of that cost is still with us to this day. So my follow-up question to you then would be, do you see parallels between the fundamentalist modernist controversy of 100 years ago and what we're experiencing right now within the broader American church? Because it seems to me that there's an awful lot of people in the middle as 100 years ago, but the two groups that are getting the most playtime are what you might call the progressives on the one hand and the populists on the other. So uh, what parallels do you see between that time and our own? I see one major difference and one similarity between contemporary debates within the Christian churches and the fundamentalist modernist area. The difference is that the major items of disagreement, early 20th century, right up into the 1930s and 40s, tended to be doctrinal, theological matters of the interpretation of Scripture. Should Genesis be regarded as myth or should it be regarded as, as history? Was the uh, death and resurrection of Christ to be seen as something that really happened or was it kind of a symbol for humankind's aspirations for better life? And those are not the issues that uh, dominate the public sphere today. The similarity would be in the definition of fundamentalist and modernism by extreme voices pushing 
the divisions to the max. And that would be, I think, a characteristic of the modern media, the modern situ uh, situation of communication, where again, more extreme voices are defining the public argumentation about how Christian faith should exist in, in the uh, public life. So it's not theology per se, it might be called applied theology, it's not theology per se that's making for the differences in these days, but it is a, a willingness to combat it ideologically and to enter into really serious wrestling, even dirty fighting, uh, when it comes to uh, making a case for different viewpoints in the public sphere. As far as I understand it, uh, when the National Association of Evangelicals was founded in 1942, they adopted that name evangelical to distinguish themselves from the fundamentalists, and they wanted to distinguish themselves from the separatist posture that many fundamentalists of the early 20th century held. And as you mentioned, people like Billy Graham became the public face for the evangelical movement within the United States. You could say perhaps John Stott was the public face of the evangelical movement within the United Kingdom. Uh, to what extent did these two leaders help build the evangelical consensus that uh, bore a lot of weight throughout the latter half of the 20th century? They were both uh, uh, people who wanted to enlist as broad a coalitions as possible to support their work. Uh, Billy Graham and his evangelistic uh, campaigns certainly wanted to do that, and it was criticized for some some on the fundamentalist fringe who, who felt that he should not try to cooperate with uh, churches that they considered to be uh, too liberal. John Stott in uh, Great Britain certainly reached throughout the Church of England and then uh, beyond the Church of England to, to try to uh, bring together those who honored the scriptures honored traditional Christian teaching, and they were both uh, uh, really, in many ways, quite successful. Uh, both of them contributed a lot to the Lausanne uh, Conference of World Evangelization in 1974, which brought together people from throughout the world who, who shared basic evangelical beliefs and who wanted to propagate the, the gospel in the right sort of way. The Lausanne Conference is a good, a good uh, item to look at, however, uh, in, in complicating a little bit what both Stott and Graham achieved in, in their uh, beginning places, their locality. Because for both Billy Graham and John Stott, much of their ministry in the last decades of their lives had to do with supporting and encouraging what we could, would call evangelical movements around the world, but which often don't use that term for themselves. And I think what uh, one of the missed opportunities of the present day, especially for Americans, but to some extent in, in Britain as well, one of the missed opportunities is not to have followed the trajectory that Billy Graham was on, moving away from defining his biblical gospel message in terms of what he thought were the most immediate needs of Americans and defining his biblical gospel message in terms of what he thought were the most immediate needs of the world as a whole and Christian believers around the whole. Graham, of course, was criticized, for example, when he went to Russia one time and allowed himself probably to be manipulated at least a little bit by the Russian government, but he came back saying, uh, I, I'm very pleased to speak to Russian believers, and I think we should be encouraging them. And then later in his life, he did even more in trying to uh, encourage, particularly evangelists, but not just evangelists around the world. And John Stott, 
for, for, for the second half of his public career, was traveling all the time, uh, uh, preaching, uh, carrying out Bible studies, devoting his uh, substantial book royalties to funding theological education for uh, believers from Africa, Asia, Latin America, places where there was very rapidly growing Christian communities, but where theological education had not, not kept up. In both cases, uh, clearly the word evangelical applies in general, even, even where around the world the, word, the, the simple term wasn't used. And strikingly, those evangelical emphases really don't have a whole lot to do with what are the fracture points in evangelical communities today in the United States. I mean, it really is quite a dramatic thing. So Billy Graham clearly is the most visible neo-evangelical in 1950s and 60s, and yet through the 1970s, 80s, 90s, into the 21st century, Graham is devoting more energy to looking for the needs and opportunities around the world. And he is, a, in, in many ways, really a really important ambassador of a Christian message around the world, and, and one that where he intentionally is backing away what, from what had been in his earlier career a real strong emphasis upon specifically American matters. At that point, uh, the ministry of Graham and Stott throughout their latter part of their career in, careers in uh, really being world Christians, that emphasis has a domestic influence. As any number now of survey research has shown, in North America, this would be true for Canada as well as the United States, in North America, among the serious Protestant and also Catholic groups that are growing rapidly are those not of traditional Caucasian origin. So uh, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, uh, of course, Hispanic Americans, uh, these are responsible for the church growth that's happening right now. So in some sense, the emphases of Graham and Stott also on world Christianity have actually developed in North America, but, but uh, we're too busy uh, worrying about people fighting each other over, over uh, you know, uh, COVID-19. And we, we don't see that, that this transformation of the churches in North America into a, into a world community of believers is taking place. As we reflect on that, Lausanne Congress as what many would regard as a high watermark within the evangelical movement in the 20th century. Uh, were some of the fault lines that have uh, widened in recent days present uh, at that International Congress on World Evangelization? And a related question would be, based on what you just said, uh, can we see some of the trajectory that Graham and Stott would go on from Lausanne? Do we see the seeds of that trajectory at Lausanne? Uh, because, for example, Graham makes the point that uh, one of the errors that evangelicals can make is to identify the gospel with any particular political program or culture. And he said, quote, I confess tonight this has been one of my own dangers in my own ministry. When I go out to preach the gospel now, I go as an ambassador for the kingdom of God and not America. I asked Mark to comment on a poignant moment in Billy Graham's address, Why Lausanne, from 1974. Here's the quote. A third era is to identify the gospel with any particular political program or culture. I confess tonight this has been one of my own dangers in my own ministry. 
When I go out to preach the gospel now, I go as an ambassador for the kingdom of God and not America. To tie the gospel to any political system, any secular program, or any society is dangerous and will only serve to divert the gospel. The gospel transcends the goals and methods of any political system or any society, however good it may be. Jesus touched on this in his conversation with Pilate. In answering Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I, I would, rather than see Lozana's planting the seeds, I, I would call see Lozana's uh, reaping the harvest of what had been going on throughout the 20th century and even back in, in, into the uh, 19th century. Yes, Billy Graham in 1974 at Lausanne makes a very sharp statement of repentance for what he calls mistakes in his earlier career. And if you can find a transcript of, or a, a recording of the early Hour of Decision programs, what he's talking about is a near identification, near identification with uh, the Christian message and a very, very strong anti-communist message. Now, looking back, was it wrong to be anti-communist? Not, not in the least, because this was a time in the world, a time in the world history when uh, Joseph Stalin was uh, wrecking havoc in, in Eastern Europe. So the problem was not so much that Graham was wrong in what he was talking about. The problem was that he seemed to be saying that the only solution for the only proper way of presenting the gospel was as an anti-communist message. Well, later in his life, he found out that there were a lot of believers in Soviet Russia and that it was more important to put first things first than it was to uh, identify so closely with a current event where he thought the gospel had to come down. Well, yes, the gospel should come down on questions like communist versus non-communist but the gospel has to come down for everybody in the whole world. Mark also referred to a significant statement John Stott made in his address entitled The Biblical Basis for Evangelism. Here's what Stott said. Mind you, I believe that some ecumenical thinking is mistaken. But then, frankly, I believe that some of our evangelical formulations are mistaken also. Many ecumenical Christians seem hardly to have begun to learn to live under the authority of Scripture. We evangelicals think we have, and there is no doubt we sincerely want to. But at times we are very selective in our submission, and the traditions of the evangelical elders sometimes owe more to culture than to Scripture. So I hope in my message this morning to strike a note of evangelical repentance. Indeed, I hope that throughout this Congress there will be more evangelical penitence than evangelical triumphalism. Both our profession and our performance as evangelicals are far from perfect, and we have some important lessons to learn from our ecumenical critics. Some of their rejection of our position is not a repudiation of biblical truth, but rather of our evangelical caricatures of biblical truth. Stott's uh, uh, commentary or, or addresses that goes on were also quite interesting because he, he pointed out that uh, the evangelical message is one that 
should be celebrated for the for the, uh, re, for the because it brought the the message of the gospel around the world. But then he also paused to say that there are aspects of how evangelicals had acted for which repentance was in order, and that combination was, I think, distinctive of Stott and, and, and in many ways of Billy Graham too. They wanted to say two things about the presentation of the gospel. They were, in a sense, anticipating the world we live in now of social media, where the voices that get heard are those that shout the loudest about one sharply focused matter. And if someone wants to say, well, we need to consider two sides of a problem, or if someone wants to say, on the one hand this, and the other hand that, the, the, the media world is lost because that's, that's way too much nuance. But here was John Stott, 1974, and I think you're right, a real key moment in world evangelical awareness, insight, outreach, at a key moment saying, the evangelicals have a great deal to celebrate. Evangelicals have a great deal for which repentance is in order. Can these two things be kept together? And then, as you, I think, were, were intimating, uh, there was there was debate and there was division at Lausanne over whether it's possible to have a very strong statement about the authority of the Bible, the necessity of personal salvation, and to have a very strong statement about the Christian responsibility to do good in society, to work for justice. And although there was disagreement there, and it took apparently quite a bit of hammering out on, on the scene, the Lausanne Covenant, it's, as it developed, emphasizes both things. It, 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 in effect, reverses the division of early fundamentalists that said you cannot have a strong social witness and preserve the gospel message. The Lausanne Covenant has a very strong statement about biblical authority, very strong statement about the necessity for personal redemption in Christ, and a very strong statement about the responsibility of believers to be active in society on behalf of those that have no power themselves and altruistically. It's, it's, uh, it's easy to get excited about public action when you're getting screwed, if you'll pardon the French, but it's, hard, it's harder to get excited of public justice when it's somebody else who is suffering, somebody else who is being oppressed. But clearly the Lausanne Covenant set out a very positive statement about the Christian responsibility to care for the least of those who are being uh, put upon in any kind of world or social situation. From what I understand, that was uh, definitely a statement that was hammered out over time and, and, and took a lot of hard thinking and prayer and negotiation and discussion, but so vital for the, uh, for the movement as a whole. Uh, in, in what ways do you feel like... Um, the hard-won consensus of the Lausanne movement is in danger of coming undone at this present moment. Yes, that, that's a, a very, very important question. I, I actually uh, think that the uh, desire to keep together a robust presentation of the gospel of personal redemption and a strong concern for social welfare has actually stayed together in many parts of the world. Uh, Brian Stiller, who's a traveling secretary for the World Evangelical Fellowship, often reports around the world and has written several, actually very moving reports about how Protestant churches in Moldova, Romania, uh, Poland, have, have uh, gone out of their way, made sacrifices to, to tend to 
the, the waves of refugees coming from uh, uh, the Ukraine. And uh, their Protestant church movements are small in these countries, but the people have, have responded uh, with aid for those who are uh, really need, in need of it. And there are many, many other people. As the World Evangelical Fellowship is a good agency for, for seeing the many places around the world where those things are kept together. It's, in my view, the United States, where uh, the, the, the possibility exists that there's a becoming a fracture between those who are concerned about the gospel and justice in society versus those who are concerned about the, the, the gospel and have a very different sense of what justice in society meets, means. And uh, we like to think in the United States that we're leading the world, but I, I think in this matter, in evangelical terms, we might be actually trailing much of the rest of the world. You had uh, talked about uh, the difference between uh, the World Cup and the World Series as okay. a analogy for thinking about the evangelical movement. Uh, do you want to explain the analogy and why that's important for us to keep in mind? You, you had uh, stated that it's important to remember that the United States is not the world. Right, uh, right. Yeah, so the World Series, a great, great baseball end of the season, and, and uh, I think there's one Canadian uh, team in, in the Major League Baseball. But when you have the World Cup, then you have uh, soccer, football, uh, 11s that come from all around the world to, to, to participate. And the World Cup, it does seem to me, is a better analogy for what Christian believers should at least be aspiring for. Uh, clearly, the developments in individual places are important, and believers need to have focused and dedicated and really serious attention to problems in their own vicinities. But for those who name the name of Christ, the kingdom is the worldwide kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom that is being built in all places by the work of the Holy Spirit as the work, as Christ's presence is, is uh, expanded. And world awareness by evangelicals won't, won't dramatically overnight bring perfect solutions to all the difficulties in the United States, but will, I think, bring perspective and and encourage what actually Billy Graham was trying to encourage at Lausanne to say, we, our, our local situations are important, Christian attention to those local situations are important, but believers need to remember that it is a gospel for all people, in all situations, at all times. And keeping that message uppermost will, I think, help out in, in uh, taking the steam out of some of the, the uh, very raucous disputes that we've seen in the evangelical world in the United States, while also allowing for the opportunity for us in this part of the world to learn from what believers in other parts of the world are, are going through. What advice would you have for Christians who would share what would traditionally be regarded as evangelical convictions to help build bridges and to proactively serve the church and our broader community rather than continuing to contribute to the noise and the fragmentation of our broader society? Well, those are certainly, that's really an imperative questions that, that point to real uh, just stress points of, of the contemporary day. I do think Christian leaders um, do have a responsibility to talk about the social implications of, of the gospel. It's not wrong, in my view, to have debates over whether, for example, people should wear masks or be vaccinated. But somehow, um, 
conveying that there is a realm of Christian life and faith that can accommodate a huge range of differences. And of course, there's a big debate over what that range of differences is. What, what are, what are non-negotiables and what are things that are secondary importances? Because things that I think are of first importance really are of first importance. If you think they're of secondary importance, you're just wrong. You know, <laughs> that's the American way of handling. But some, but particularly pastors, I think, and then and then uh, lay women and men too, uh, should realize that the the Christian story, the Christian message, the truths of the Bible, are being taught, proclaimed, lived out in uh, the South Pacific, in Latin America, throughout the continent of Africa and Asia and Europe, as they are in our environment, and so, to in some way. To, to have as first matters, first principles, the, the Christianity that is shared throughout the world, the Christianity that is shared back into the, into the past. And then to be able to say, well, of course, other things are important, but we should always keep the shared Christianity, the Apostles' Creed Christianity, the basic evangelical Christianity as our north star of our compass. Now, there's just un, any number of difficulties in, in, in doing that be, uh, because the, the answer is not to have an apolitical or asocial or uh, a church that, that is, is strictly spiritual in the sense that it never talks about so, social issues because that's a betrayal of the gospel too. But somehow uh, uh, making the priority, the message of new life in Christ the privilege of living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then somehow making the category distinction that everything else we're going to be talking, we might be talking about, is probably going to be important, but it's not as important as what these essential things are telling us to do. That, that's an awfully difficult maneuver because all of us, in one way or another, just have, have absorbed that certain positions and certain public issues are simply what it means to be Christian. But we need, I think, to be able to de debate and talk about and not scream at each other and respect each other rather than simply take for granted that connection between first order and second order truths. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.